Let's talk about the economy. Woo! If you're here for the news, you know you like to talk about the economy. I'm going to take it down a notch after that. I was going to start with a song, but then it sounded racist. Because I was going to do a reggae-style song like uh, a certain unmentionable man had done in the past. Uh, but... I guess it was probably racist when he did it, so me copying him may, would make me racist. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. We're just gonna talk about the economy. Uh, prices in Japan are up four percent compared to last year. Now I have noticed that. I actually have noticed I'm spending more money on just like the things I used to buy. I used to buy every Tuesday. So today is Tuesday when I record this. Uh, I'm at home. Kids are at school. Wife is at work. I make dinner. So I would go and buy stuff for dinner. And I've noticed that it is more expensive just to buy basic items for dinner. Which has made me more conservative. And that's not a unique thing to have happen. Household spending overall in Japan is down 1.2%. So everything's 4% more expensive. But that means people are buying 1.2% less stuff. This is problematic. Because private spending is nearly half of Japan's GDP. So basically, Japan's economy, if Japanese people aren't spending money, then the GDP inherently goes down. So this increase in inflation is is a bigger problem than just things are more expensive. It means people are spending less money. If people are spending less money, the GDP of the country is decreasing. Now this has led to... Government calls, I believe we've actually talked about this before, government calls for increases in salaries. I thought this might be like an endless cycle. Inflation goes up, salaries go up, but then that doesn't mean anything. It almost cancels each other out. And then you can just do that infinitely. But then you get into a situation where like a thousand yen, which is sort of, again, the the, the really quick equivalent would be $10. You got to use 10,000 yen equivalent to $10. Inflation goes up, prices go up, salaries go up. It means nothing. So there's a part of my brain goes, why don't you just not do the inflation? And then you don't have to give the salary increases. Because if we do a, a pricing uh, inflation of 4% and then a salary increase of 4%, let's say, it's equivalency. Just don't do that in the first place. I know econo- economics is not that simple. But economists often make it seem like infinite growth is possible when it isn't. This is a problem with the video game industry. And they think that infinite... They basically are saying everything has to be more successful than the previous thing to count as successful. The problem being there's only actually a finite of people who play video games. So you can only extract so much money from them. Therefore, there is not an infinite well of money you can pool from so you have to actually start looking at is what's our upper limit, not infinite. Anyways, they're calling companies are being called to to uh, look at their their pay structures as social responsibility because if the workers don't have money, they're not going to spend money because they need to save. If they need to save, then the GDP of Japan as a country goes down. That's the infinite loop that we're in right now. This is being called new capitalism by some corners growth and uh, it's it's a growth and redistribution policy uh, 
Companies should monitor prices and improve momentum of wage raises so that people can continue spending. The problem is this isn't how companies work. Companies don't tend to work on social responsibility or worry about the GDP. They worry about themselves. Companies in a capitalist society are inherently selfish. So if the government wants this to happen, they have to force it. But if they force it, they're going to be overstepping their bounds. That is sort of the core issues we're dealing with um, with this problem of inflation versus wages. Uniglo actually a weirdly positive company. So they come up as an example a lot. Uniglo is looking to raise their annual salaries by up to 40%. Now that up to is very important, does a lot of heavy lifting. Whenever something says up to, what you actually have to read is less than. Uh, I once had a juice that had up to, it was like a drink, and it had up to 10% real fruit juice. But up to 10% could mean zero. So I, that, when I looked at it, I was immediately went, there may be no actual juice in this because that is up to 10%. It was a very interesting way of wording it, and so that, that made me concerned. So uh, university grads, if you get a job at Uniglo, right now you, your base salary would be 255,000 yen, which is pretty close to average. They're going to raise that to 300,000. That is 16%. So that's probably most of their workers. Uh, University graduates get maybe a little bump, but you can see what they're doing is like, okay, we're going to give the average worker 15 to 20% raise. Store managers currently making 290,000 yen, they're going to get 390,000 yen. That is a 100,000 yen increase. That is significant. So Uniglo has taken on this sort of, I don't think they did it because of the government, but they realize like if we want our workers to flourish, they have to have money to flourish with. There's an interesting, it was spun very positively. NTT, the biggest mobile communications network in Japan, said they're going to move from a seniority-based system. So Japan's still very much like the longer you stay at a company, the more money you make at that company, even if you're not very good at your job. But that's uh, irrelevant because if I've been here for 50 years, maybe I've like absorbed knowledge in something like that. I don't know. They're going to change to a merit-based system. And I was like, oh, it, that sounds really good. And I thought about it more. What does that actually mean? Because what's happening right now is companies have this base salary system, depending on how you're working. And if it's going to be impacted by inflation, so if inflation goes up 4% and the company I work for has to raise my wages by 4% to match inflation, that's just, let's just say that's the new standard. And that's not actually what's going to happen. My company's not giving me a raise forever. Uh, but let's say that is what happens. That's going to be affect your uh, raises and whatnot based on inflation. You don't want to have to react to inflation. So if you make your raises and payment system merit-based, you can ignore the greater economy. You can say, look, you're getting paid this much because of your performance. If you're a high performer, yeah, you do deserve money. That's great. But the average worker probably will get nothing because we don't want to reward averageness. So I think my, this, they're framing this as a very positive thing. Like we're doing away with the old system. We're going to a merit-based system and everybody loves merit-based systems. And then I was like, ah, I think this might be a way of them to say, we aren't going to react to inflation. We're going to just change our pay structure so that we can do it all internally. And then 
turn around and say, no one has performed well enough because of inflation, all our profits have been down. So, so that means no one's performed well enough. Therefore, nobody gets a, a pay raise. And that seems like the very sad state of the economy in Japan at the moment. So you think that's fun. Now we're going to do international politics. I got to come up with little theme songs now. I realized that. Uh, I, need, I need an economy song. Economy, the economy. And then I need an international politics. I, I seem to have a very ska-based sound for my theme intro jingles. International politics. I have been framing international politics throughout the entirety of this podcast as high school drama, which has been pretty descriptive. And it's because we're dealing with boisterous nations like North Korea. Now, this one isn't North Korea, it's China, but China does take a stance. Uh, it seems like communist parties and these sort of dictatorship-oriented countries really feel free about condemning other countries about stuff they clearly do themselves. China has gone through a big wave of COVID. And Japan's, they just finished their seventh or eighth wave. I stopped counting. There's not really waves anymore. Uh, it seems very random. When I check the Tokyo numbers, it is like 500,000, five. Like they'll do, they'll like fluctuate that much in a day. So Japan said, look, China's going through a really big COVID wave. We're going to have people who want to go from China to Japan. You have to take a COVID test, have a negative COVID test uh, before you leave. Probably uh, when I went to Canada and came back, it had to be two days before I returned. I needed a negative COVID test. China said that this is a discriminatory... China said, until discriminatory entry restrictions against China are lifted, China will stop giving visa, visas to Japanese travelers, which is a bit of an overreaction because Japan's not saying you can't come from China to Japan. Japan's saying, if you come, you need to take a COVID test, which to me seems very reasonable because I had to do it. I came from Canada, which you would consider a very friendly country to Japan. Now, it was more sort of, I guess it was... It wasn't peak pandemic. It was this summer, last summer break. But I didn't feel like that was an unreasonable request. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to spend the $250, which turned into $500, because I had to do one for me and my daughter. But I was like, yeah, you don't want to bring COVID. The whole problem is people traveled around, and that's how COVID got around in the first place. So why New Zealand did a fairly good job. It's because they like, were locking down the borders, not letting anyone in. I said to do that at the beginning, but Japan didn't listen. I, the government of Japan doesn't listen to this podcast, and that, I think, might be one of the bigger problems we have, because I have solutions. So the, Je the Japanese foreign minister, he's opposed to the Chinese restrictions. The problem is, the you being unhappy with another country's decision is irrelevant, but they always get... This is a phrase that comes up all the time, and I've realized it's just like a standard phrase extremely regrettable. The Japanese foreign minister finds that the decision of China to remove the possibility of visas for Chinese people going to China as extremely regrettable. And it seems like the harshest language diplomats can take. So really, this is just a Chinese, uh, Japanese foreign minister going like, fuck you guys. <laughs> and then uh, North Korea uses extremely regrettable for everything. And the second thought is they should actually lower the so extremely regrettable is their strong version of language. They should pull it back. 
And I is I'm a father, and I've realized as a father, like so if I if I get really rambunctious or vociferous or I make a lot of noise and stuff, the kids don't take me seriously. But if I get quiet and so I, I go, I'm not happy about that. That has a big impact. And there was a story I read, and it was about World War II. And they dropped f bombs constantly, so it was like get your fucking gun, get your fucking kid, get your fuck 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 fuck. So fuck was a normal part of an everyday order. But when someone came into the room and said, get your gun, that had impact because dropping the F-bomb out of the sentence meant that this was serious. So on a normal day, a normal order, you'd say, fuck. But then when it got serious, you dropped it. So I was like, ah, what Japan's, what they need to do is actually drop back the language. So it's not extremely regrettable. You go, "Mm, that's too bad. And sound disappointed, but then they'll be like, ooh, what does that mean? I think that actually might have some impact. It'd be interesting to see what happens. Still on international politics, uh, the Russian, the ex-president of Russia, Japan, the prime minister, Kishida, he said, like, I'm going to go to America. We're going to have a little meeting with Biden. You know, work shit out because we're going we're gonna to solve problems. And they said, man, if Russia nukes Ukraine, that's bad. Okay, that is the the depth of the statement they made. If Russia nukes Japan, that's bad. That's, I mean, I think they said it in a more political way. But the ex-president of Russia, of Russia was like, this statement is completely unacceptable. You can't tell us what to do. You can't tell us not to use nuclear weapons. You're, you're having a meeting with a country that has just suspended nuclear weapons as us. What are you getting all up in our faces about? So the Russian ex-president says, the Japanese prime minister should commit ritual suicide at the next cabinet meeting in Japan. That's the only way he could wash away the shame of the statement. The statement being, please don't use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. <laughs> I was like, like this is what I'm saying. Like The, the level, of, is it hyperbole? The level of theater these guys use in their language gets to the point where it's nonsensical. Like, Nukes are bad. You should kill yourself for that. Um, apparently that's what... But And then... So the, the Japanese dude's supposed to commit ritual suicide. Seppeku. Uh, but he didn't say anything about the, the Biden. So the president, he's like, well... I guess they don't have that. I guess you have that in your culture, so it's a fair thing to say. Like, So here's a question that I would love to have someone ask him. Do you think he's really going to do it? I mean, they don't do that anymore. It's not a thing anymore. But did you think he was going to be like, oh, man, the ex-president of Russia said I should go kill myself at the next cabinet meeting. I guess I'm going to go kill myself at the next cabinet meeting. And then if he did it, like, would you be like, yay? (laughs) Japan's washed away their shame. I don't know what this was supposed to do. It just didn't, it's again, it's, it doesn't make any sense to me. That's all. I think that's where we are. International politics. When we get to this level, there's so much theater involved. I don't actually know what people are saying anymore. I don't know what people mean anymore. And that might be why I actually said it originally. Like they should bring it down a notch so that it can actually start to make sense again. We have talked about the emergency services video function that was added to 
Japan's emergency services, uh, services recently. It was in October and November. In October and November, they read 622 calls. And they weren't calls. They were video calls. And the reason really for doing this is young people, generally, that's how, if they're going to make a call, they make a video call. So that's how, what they know how to do. So they're like, we have to adapt. And I, this is an interesting thing because you have two very big sort of stratas in Japan. You have old people who don't know how to use any technology and you have young people who kind of only know how to use technology. There was an interesting uh, story. It was in America and it was the, a guy got arrested and he didn't know how to use a phone book because he'd only ever used the internet. So it became a legal right that they had to have access. So he's like, they're like, you can make your one phone call. Here's a phone book. He's like, I don't know how to use, what is this? I've never seen this thing before, this giant book you've just put in front of me. So the police were like, okay, well, we have to let him access the internet to, to be able to contact someone. So that's when a phone call became a broader thing. It was like, you have to be able to contact someone so you can send an email or something. I don't know exactly what the specifics were, but they did broaden the scope of what your one phone call actually entailed and how you can access the phone because they found that it's not really fair if young people don't know how to use a phone book that you give them a phone book. So this was about like, since young people know how to make video calls and they might be helpful uh let's give it a try so they got 622 calls which is awesome uh but they actually caught some fleeing suspects because while they were on the emergency call the guy was like well pointed at the car so i can see their license plate and they got like a screenshot of the license plate so they were able to catch some people who did hit and runs the one i found most interesting they had a hiker who got stranded on a mountain and they used the video call to help identify the area so the people could find them more quickly. So it was really good, first of all, that they had cell service. That was the important part. But the fact that they had cell service, they were like, okay, take your camera and like look around. And then, oh, someone's going to recognize that mountain. So you're looking at that mountain. So you're this way. And then, oh, look over there. They could kind of triangulate where they were because they could see their surroundings. And they helped save someone's life, which I thought was really nice. But this did lead us to a couple of other stats, which are interesting. There were 1.63 million calls to the non-emergency number in Japan. It was mostly drunk people asking for taxis or people complaining about traffic tickets. 1.6 million. So I would not want to be the person on the other end of that phone. Let's just make that uh, statement out there. When I'm looking for my, my job career change, it's not going to be the person on the non-emergency line. Japan's a very gun-safe country. And I like to illustrate that by the kind of stories that make the news in Japan. So a 56-year-old 50, cop accidentally... Okay, let's actually just do the story. Something that's been bugging me is news stories lead with the bit so you don't have to read the article. Whereas I actually want to go through the steps and then get to the bit. So 56-year-old cop is uh, at the Tokyo Airport police station. And they're, ah, oh, it's time to take the bullets out of my gun. So they go to take it out of the holster. The holster's stiff. So they yank it out really hard. It bangs a table and goes off. Now, I was a little confused by that. My understanding is that guns are inherently designed. So in the movies, you drop a gun and it goes off and kills a guy. That actually happens quite a lot. My understanding is that in real life, guns are designed to not, if you bang them, just go off. So I was thinking... Was the gun cocked and the table hit the like hammer of the gun and then it went off? Or did the person pulling the gun from the holster have their finger on the trigger and then when it hit the table, pulled the trigger? They didn't explain any of that. 
The explanation was the holster was stiff, so I, when I pulled the gun out, pulled it full force and hit the table. But that makes me think they had their finger on the trigger as they pulled out their gun. Uh, so, no one was hurt. Nothing happened. Uh, that's it. So, like, in other countries, you'd be talking about, like, a shooting in the airport, how many people died. In Japan, basically nothing happened. And because a gun was discharged, it became a news story. And that is honestly one of the reasons why I think gun control works. Because that's the news story of the day. Okay, we're getting to uh, local, sort of smaller news. But shogi players. Now, you would imagine shogi is a kind of chess, Jap uh, Asian chess. I don't know if it's just Japanese. I think it is, but I don't want to say that because I don't want to actually make a mistake. Shogi players, chess players, if you think about the chess player personality, you would think of a relatively pedantic person. I think that is a fair thing to say. Uh, shogi players are no different. They are very pedantic. So this was a high-level tournament. They had like six dan, seven dan. I didn't know what any of that meant. Um, but it's high level. And then one guy goes, look, that dude's not wearing his mask properly. He's actually got a mask on, but it's covering his mouth, not his nose. Now, anyone who's wearing a mask properly knows that it has to cover all the orify. I do like pluralizing with the eye more than anything else. Uh, it has to cover all the orifices on your face, as in your mouth and both your nostrils. Uh, not your ears or your nose or your eyes. Um, so he said, like, dude, please, please put your mask on properly, cover your nose. And the guy ignored him. So he just said it a couple more times. The guy ignored him. He calls a ref. He's like, ref, dude's not wearing his mask properly. And then the ref says, uh, dude, you got to wear a mask. He says, I'm wearing a mask. There is no rule that bans exposing your nose. So the rule is you have to wear a mask, which would literally mean interpretation-wise, I could put a mask on the top of my head, cover nothing on my face, and that would follow the rules. So again, these guys are being pedantic. Uh, the ref being a little more spirit of the rule rather than letter of the law said, you're disqualified. Now the guy left the venue and he said, I understand, I will file a lawsuit. If your behavior gets you to a point where you feel you need to sue people for doing things like this, there may be a moment in your life where you have to stop and say, am I right? So the actual, I, I did look up the, the law, the rule, and the rule is players must wear masks during matches except for brief moments. And what they mean is like, I'm wearing a mask, uh, we've been here for two hours playing chess, I can take off my mask and take a drink, and then I put my mask back on. So that's the brief exception where you do not wear a mask. Um, but this guy decided he doesn't want a mask. This is actually the second time. It seems like shogi players are not anti-maskers, but they, I guess, I guess they want to have sort of their nose open so they can breathe, so they can get more oxygen to their brain, so they can be more effective. Drink through the mask. You could filter out all the bad stuff. You put the mask on and just and then open your mouth inside. You'll get some. But it was just one of those things that's just ridiculous. So uh, I enjoyed that story because I just enjoyed the idea of shogi players being super pedantic about everything. 
Traditionally, the last story in Ninja News Japan is creepy guy time. It's not even creepy gender neutral person time. It's just creepy guy time. It's always a dude. Uh, I have I have put a kibosh on uh, panty theft stories and a couple other things like that that just show up too often, only because they've become too repetitive. But this w- creepy dudes, they always find a new and interesting way to gross me out. <laughs> so I, I'm glad I can look at that for the rest of my life and know that. I will never be surprised by how creepy and gross guys can be. JR is Japan Rail, so it's a train station staff. And he was asked to guide a visually impaired woman, you know, to the the platform, maybe back to the exit, you know. So just be a good person and help out someone who struggles every now and then. The woman then accused him of sexual harassment. What?! How is it even possible men have never sexually harassed anyone in the entirety of human history? Uh, he claims that because he had helped her several times, that they, they were just being friendly. Now, I don't want to judge, although you know clearly I already have. I don't want to judge that the man is, is overestimating what is appropriate in a friendly relationship. I, I I deal with people all the time, and I yes, I deal with people multiple times. I, I sometimes make a, a racy joke, perhaps. Um, I don't, actually, because I get in trouble. So I was like, okay, we got to find out what he said. What did he say? Did he cross the line? So was he being friendly, or was he sexually harassing? So the first thing he said is, what time are you coming home today? Now that, I was like, oh... It could be interpreted both ways. Like, oh, I'll be around when you come home, so I will help you again. Very nice thing to say. Uh, Or it could be, I'm a stalker, and I'm trying to, you know, find out your schedule. Okay. He actually didn't say just that, though. He said, let's go to a new ramen restaurant. That's not okay. So I think we've already crossed the line. Like, he's asking her to go with him. Now, if you want to be generous, we don't have to be because he ruins it later. If you want to be generous... You could say he is just recommending a restaurant and as a friend, he's saying, because they've become very friendly, let's go to a ramen together. I think we both all, we all know that that's not what's happening. But I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt just so that his last line kills it harder. She says, I'd like to go to the elevator. And he said, oh, if we take the stairs, I can give you a piggyback. Piggybacks in Japan. Now, you might be thinking that that is a weird thing to say. It's kind you know, you could interpret that as kind of innocent, maybe a weird joke. In Japan, piggybacks are sexual. In anime and stuff, what you see are usually girls who love a guy, and then the guy they hurt their foot or something. There is some mechanic in which they have to like they can't they have struggled to walk. And the guy gives him a piggyback. And then she's laying sort of her head on the back of his head or on his shoulder, and there it's the closeness. And in Japan, that is not sexual, but it's a precursor to a sexual relationship, if I could put it that way. I think, I think the thing in itself is not sexual, but it shows where this relationship is going. So there is a sexual undertone to it. There's a lot of things like that. On Ninja News Japan, several times I've explained the long-distance kiss. And it's the idea that I have my cup of hot water to keep my voice smooth and romantic. I take a drink. And the, my lips have touched it. And then I share the drink with someone else. And their lips touch the same thing. 
So in a very metaphysical way, our lips have touched in a long distance. They call that the long distance kiss. So you can see we're not kissing, but there's a sexual undertone to these other things. So not the indirect kiss. That may be the case. I heard it. So the way it was explained to me was long distance. I just really like that term as well. So indirect kiss, I mean, it's the same thing. It means you're not actually kissing, but your, your lips are touching the same thing. So I think we're on the same page. But I, long distance, I think I really enjoyed that. Um, so he said, like, I'll give you a piggyback. Weird, again, hasn't already crossed a line. But then the last line he said was, isn't your chest heavy? I can carry it for you. So as generous as we might want to be, like let's say we're in a court of law and the guy says, oh, I was just being friendly. You could try to interpret those first two examples as just friendly and maybe get away with it. But isn't your chest heavy? I can carry it for you. I think is not something that friends would say to each other even if it was in a nonsense. Like, I'm sorry, it's just it. Again, like I said, he has sabotaged his own defense. If his defense was, I was just being friendly, his statements would have had to remain relatively neutral. And perhaps that's why the guy is gross and hitting on people is because he doesn't know how to hit on people. He doesn't know how to formulate that relationship in the first place. Jade has put in, look, he's just being a homie. Big boobs are heavy. Back pain is real. I actually do have some friends who've told me that, that yes, the back pain is real. Um... And yet, I never offered to carry their boobs for them. So, I think with that beautiful sonata playing around in the back of your head, we're going to end today's Ninja News Japan.